Good morning, church. Welcome in. For those of you joining us online, welcome in to MCC. If you got a Bible, hopefully uh, you do, grab it and go to Jonah chapter 3. Uh, Jonah's a little small book, so it might be easier to go to the table of contents, or if you're on your phone, it should be pretty easy to find. Jonah chapter 3 is where we're going to be. As you're turning to there, I want to draw your attention to one thing that's coming up here at MCC that's going to be happening on February 5th. It's our Connecting Point lunch. This is probably one of the most important events that we have here at MCC. Connecting Point is what we do as a church to make sure nobody ever says something like this. Well, that was a really cool church, that MCC place. I liked going there, but I just never got connected. We have this lunch to be able to help move you from just being someone who comes and kind of sits in a chair and experiences some stuff, hears the gospel, but goes from then being someone who's actually connected into the body of Christ. If we read the word, it tells us that the body, that the church is supposed to operate like a family and everybody's got a unique part, a unique role, and nobody wants to be left out or overlooked. And so connecting point is where you as someone who's kind of new to MCC, maybe you've started coming over the last uh, three or so months. This is where you get connected and figure out, okay, what does it look like to be really a part of this family, to move from just being someone who comes to somebody who contributes to the mission and the vision that God has given us here as a church. So the way you can sign up for that is text breadsticks to that number on the screen. And we text breadsticks because there's going to be Olive Garden. All right. Olive Garden at the lunch. It's free. There's childcare provided. Uh, so there's no excuse. I cannot wait to have you guys there. If you want to come text breadsticks to that number and we'll see you there. All right. Everybody in Jonah? Are you in Jonah? Okay, hopefully you're there. Like, let's go. Come on. All right. Jonah chapter three. We're going to go through the whole chapter today. Jonah chapter three. We're seeing the reluctant prophet actually get his act together and go and do what God tells him. This is Jonah chapter three. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called out for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least. Then the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's pray. Father, today we thank you for a story of repentance. Father, we thank you for a story of your mercy. Father, we thank you for a story of reluctant obedience from a man of God and all the things that we can learn from these. But God, the thing that I pray the most that we see through this story, it's not a prophet, it's not a repentant city, it's not sheep and cattle and livestock with sackcloth and ashes on them, but the thing that we see in the story is your son. We see Jesus as the true one who comes and offers his life that you didn't forever withhold judgment, that you poured out judgment, you poured it out on your son 
so that we could have new life in him. And you call us to do like the people of Nineveh, God, to repent. And Jesus, we thank you that through our faith, through our repentance, we have a God in you who took the judgment we deserve. Help us to never miss that big truth, that hard reality. And as I preach your word today, God, I pray that you say only the words that you see fit. As I preach your word today, I pray you soften even the most hard heart. As I preach this living and active word, I pray it's sharp. I pray it pierces through joint and marrow, divides soul and spirit, and goes exactly where it needs to go. In your name, amen. So to recap a little bit as far as where we've been. So far, Jonah is a prophet of God, which means uh, God gives this guy words to go speak. Most of the time, prophets were going to speak to the nation of Israel. God's kind of chosen a little group of people to go and, and speak to them. In the Old Testament, God most of the time would speak through prophets. He would speak into the prophet, tell the prophet to go tell the people stuff. Most of the time, he'd send a prophet when people were doing bad, stupid things. He'd tell them to repent or bad things are going to happen. In this particular case, Jonah is a prophet of God, and God gives Jonah kind of a unique role. He tells Jonah to actually go to the enemy of the Israelites, go to the Ninevites, the, the hated enemy of the Israelites, go to them, the, this nation that is the Assyrian empire, go and tell them to repent. God says, I've seen the wicked, evil, vile things that they're doing. Jonah, I have picked you to be the guy who goes and does that. Jonah essentially says, no, I'm not gonna do that. God's kind of way of saying, go east. Jonah says, I'm gonna go west. I'm gonna go as far west as I possibly can. Things don't go good when you run from God because you can't run from God. You may be able to get a little bit of distance, but then you look right behind you and he's still right there. God sends a storm. He says, I have authority over everything that you're in, Jonah, whether it's the boat, whether it's the water, I have authority over it all. God sends this giant storm. Jonah essentially wakes up and doesn't cry out to God in the midst of the storm. He just kind of says to the guys on the ship, this is my fault. Throw me overboard. And they do. And then we finally see Jonah begin to cry out to God as God sends his grace to Jonah in the most unlikely of forms of grace. God's grace meets Jonah and God's grace eats Jonah as a giant fish gobbles him up. And there in the belly of the fish, we see Jonah pray a big prayer, a very unique prayer that we leaned into last week. It's how you pray when you know that God has ultimate authority and God loves to rescue what seems like a lost cause. And at the end of our story last week, we see this fish vomit Jonah out onto the sea. Now, it's kind of cold and flu season. I don't know how you guys feel about vomit, but, but one of the things that I know about vomit is that it's probably one of my absolute least favorite things in the entire world. Like throwing up, I would almost rather do anything than throw up. Like any of my people out there who like, give me the flu every day and twice on Sunday as opposed to a stomach bug. Anybody else in that boat? Okay, thank you. What I have found from this story though, and this is deep Holy Spirit uh, revelation. You may need to write this down. The only thing worse than vomiting is being vomited. Like that is the absolute, that has got, that if vomiting is as bad as it is, being vomited has got to be worse. And that's where our story ended last week. And it picks up this week with the word of the Lord coming back to Jonah one more time. This is what he said. Word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Everybody say that, a second time. There we go. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, if you go back to chapter one, what you see is God is giving verbatim Jonah the same message he gave him. And I don't know who's in here I'm talking to today, but some of you, that is exactly what God is doing. He's gonna verbatim give you the exact same message, the thing that he's told you over and over again. Now, what I love about our God is he doesn't give up on us when we give up on him. 
I love, that was a great place for an amen. I love, I know I talk fast, so you didn't have any chance. Um, I know that we have a God who is the God of second chances, but he's not just a God of second chances. He's a God of another chance. I almost wrote and, and gave you a slide to take home with you and, you know, take a picture of or whatever that said he's a God of second chances. And maybe that makes a good Christian song to hear on the radio, but he's not the God of second chances. He's got a third chances, four chances, fifth chances, 17 chances. He's the God who never runs out of chances to give people. And I'm so thankful for that. Anybody here today, we want to just kind of raise your hand and praise God. You can remember like the exact moment that God gave you that second chance, a second chance at a marriage, a second chance at a job, a second chance at a family. God gave us second chances. And I'm so thankful that God has given us those second chances. What I love about our God is he's a God who likes to rescue and redeem. And he really, I feel like he just kind of pokes his chest out and flexes his muscles a little bit sometimes when he saves and redeems and restores and rescues even the most lost and broken of causes. One of these that um, maybe you remember, maybe you don't. Uh, there's this band back in like the, the early, late 90s, early 2000s, this band called Corn, uh, And you know it was different because they spelled it with a K and the R was backwards. Anybody remember Corn? All right. Anybody have a Corn CD? I mean, any, you, you know, be willing to admit in church in front of uh, the saints um, that maybe you, you listened to Corn on the radio, you know, or maybe you were like me. I, I told you during that season of my life, you know, I was a kind of, that was my, my formative kind of beginning of adolescent teenage years. And I was a kind of a punk skateboarder kid. And I, I knew that if I wanted to get a porn seat, uh, not porn. Wow. Woo. Woo. Said a lot of words today. I knew where to get that too. Let's be honest. Um, see, geez, Louise. I knew if I wanted to get a corn CD, it's corn. Um, I knew if I wanted to get that, that I, I should go to Target and not Walmart. All right. Now you, other, any millennials in the room know why you go to Target, not Walmart to get your CDs, right? And anybody, you Gen Z people in the room are like, what's a CD? Um, <laughs> it's how we got music back in the day. But you would go to Target because Target didn't uh, blur out all the bad lyrics. So you could go to Target and you could get the bad ones. And if you went to Walmart, Walmart was family friendly, I guess. You know, and, and, and the Walmart one had all the explicit stuff dropped out. But I love, Corn was a band that I, I loved, that I listened to. And the lead singer, or not the lead singer, the, the lead guitarist for the band Corn was a guy, uh, his stage name was Head, uh, but his real name was Brian Welch. And one day, Brian Welch was in his car, and he was listening to Nine Inch Nails. Sorry, giving all you guys a, a, a rock history lesson today. Uh, he was listening to this band called the Nine Inch Nails, and they have a particular song. It says, bow down before the God you serve. You're going to get what you deserve. And he said he couldn't get those lyrics out of his head. At that point in his time, he had all the money he could ever want. He had all the women he could ever want. He had all the drugs he ever want. And he was fully addicted to crystal meth at that point in his life. And at the same time, he uh, was trying to buy a house and he had a real estate agent. Now, unbeknownst to him, that real estate agent was a follower of Christ. And as he's kind of having this internal, very secretive a crisis of faith inside of him, as he's realizing how empty and void of any sort of purpose or significance, even though he's at that point in time, Corn's one of the biggest rock bands in the entire world, one of the biggest bands in the entire world. He realizes how empty and void of any sort of significance that is. And he's having this crisis of faith on the inside, his realtor, invites him to come to church. And that one simple invite, that one simple surrender to this random invitation. I mean, can you imagine being a realtor? And it's like, okay, well, who's my next client? Well, it's the you know, lead guitarist of Corn. I don't know if you get excited or if you get nervous or I don't know where you go from there, but he goes to the place where he invites him to church. And it's a catalyst to a remarkable, miraculous, dare I say, 
salvation story in this man. I'll, I'll give you Brian Head Welch's testimony here. He says, I was completely empty, a completely empty shell. There was nothing on the inside. Even though I had everything, I had money, girls everywhere, drugs, everything, but it was just empty, so empty. But as soon as I went to church, I felt the love of Jesus and I was done with everything of the world because I was satisfied inside and I got filled up. Now, he, he said that in interviews on, on like, not uh, Christian you know, TBN, he said that on public interviews, places like MTV, places like, you know, America, places like that, he said that from stage in front of thousands, and he even wrote a book about how Jesus miraculously transformed his life. Now, the wild irony in that is that he's the same guy who well-meaning Christian parents would have looked at in the early 2000s and said, that guy is part of the problem. And the same person that well-meaning Christians even would look at and go, that, that's kind of part of the problem. And my kids, I do not want my kids to listen to that. Jesus sees that person not as part of the problem, but as a potential vessel through which his grace can flow and influence others. I love when Jesus redeems and restores. Even the people we go, ooh, that's a lost cause. Jesus goes, no, watch what I can do. And that's some of what we even see him doing here in the story of Jonah, through Jonah's second chance and definitely through the people of Nineveh. So Jonah finally says, yes, in verse three, we see him get up and go. So Jonah rose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days uh, journey in breadth. So he's saying it's very big. I remember I told you Jonah was at that point in time, biggest, most uh, big, bad city there possibly was in the empire at that point in time. And Jonah goes, but before Jonah goes, he arose, he gets up. And he finally says yes to God. We're going to find out when we get to chapter four that even hit Jonah's yes was a very reluctant yes. But I want to show you something about what we say yes to. Because I imagine in this room today, there's some people who've been saying no or not yet or maybe later to God. How many of you parents in the room, you just want your kids to do what you say right away? Right? This is all of us. All right, just, you know, do what I say. Don't, don't ask me 17 questions about what I told you to do. Just go do what I told you to do. They ask you questions about what they get to do after the thing that they have not done yet. Anybody else, kids, do that? We do the same thing with God. So be nice to your kids and, and give them the grace you hope God gives you when, you when he tells you to do something. And then you go, but what about and then this? Can after I do this, can this happen? Okay. So I want to talk to you about why we get to the place where we finally say yes. The unreserved yes. The unreserved yes comes from when the person you're saying yes to has one or two or hopefully both things. The first thing that will make you say an unreserved yes to somebody who's leading you, guiding you, is when they have authority over you. You've seen and experienced this. Maybe uh, your boss comes in and, and tells you, someone who's kind of a, a mid-level employee, comes in and tells you to, to go tell another employee who's kind of on the parallel line with you, hey, go tell them that they need to do this. And you go into their office and you say, hey, um, you need to do blah, 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 X, Y, Z. And they look at you and they say, you're not my boss. And they don't do it. Now, depending on what type of person you are, you go and you know, snitch on them. Oh, they said they weren't gonna do it. Or you're the type of person who goes, okay, we'll wait and see. And you just kind of wait and see. You don't give them no more warnings. You don't send another email. You don't say, hey, let's circle back to that thing. You know, you're just like, we'll just go see what happens. 
And then eventually the boss comes in and you put your head up to the drywall when he's in their office because, so that you can hear them start saying yes to all the things they told you no to because somebody with more authority than you walked in the room. And then there's the authority side, but the other side of who we say yes to is the person who has our love. I watched this happen when I was in college. One of my roommates, uh, he had uh, broken up with a girl that he had been with for a really long time. And she was your typical like girl next door type, uh, blonde hair, blue eyes, just Southern, um, that type of uh, young lady, beautiful. And then he started dating this, uh, another girl and she was obviously also attractive, but she was from up North. She was from Chicago. She was a Yankees fan. She liked Derek Jeter. Um, <laughs> just different in a lot of like this totally different culture. Um, and one of the things that, that we started to notice is, um, in our refrigerator, like when, when she would come over, they would like have like wine and cheese together, like as individuals. And again, we, we drank Gatorade and ate pizza rolls at our house. And so like, this was really weird. That was like the, the nice stuff that we had. And so when we see stuff in our refrigerator and, and like it's French words on these bottles that we don't even know how to pronounce like Pinot Grigio and, and, uh, I don't, I don't, why, who's got Pinot? Like, why is, what is this in here? And then these cheeses, and again, the cheeses that we, and, and we're having to be told, no, guys, don't touch that cheese. And we're like, that cheese looks good. It's cool. It's got leaves and stuff in it. I want to try that cheese. And we're not allowed to try this cheese. And this guy who's one of our close friends who like ate pizza rolls and drank Gatorade with us is now drinking Pinot Grigio and, and eating cheese that we can't pronounce. And we're like, what's going on? Well, he was saying yes to somebody he loved. He started wearing scarves. I mean, you've been there. You've seen these things. <laughs> It happens, fellas. Every, every man in the room knows exactly what I'm talking about. You find yourself doing yoga and going, Why, how did I get here? Well, love got you here, big guy. Because the person who has authority over you and the person you're in love with is the person you'll say yes to. And if you find yourself in this tension spot where you're not saying yes to how God's leading you, it's one of the two or maybe both of those. You don't recognize him as the ultimate authority. Uh, like, like Jonah, to recognize that you're not just in control of what I say to do, but you're also in control of wind, waves, ships, mariners, and fish. And you can navigate all of those to do punishing things to my life to get me to submit to your authority. And the other side from Jonah, uh, maybe you don't realize how truly this God loves you, how a group of mariners could get over and throw you into this raging sea, but this God loves you enough to reach in and rescue, send grace in the most unlikely of ways to reach in and save you out of it. And so... My question to you, maybe if you're like me, sometimes you find yourself struggling with saying yes, just a quick, instant yes to God. Maybe you need to lean into, have I really trusted his authority in my life? And two, do I really understand how much he loves me? I mean, who else should I say yes to? Who else has given their only son so that I could have eternal life in him? Who else should be the ultimate authority and the ultimate love of my life. There is no one else. So I should say yes to him. And what we see is Jonah, even though reluctantly, begins to finally say yes to God. And he continues on from there. And what I want to show you here is why it's kind of hard and complicated to go, okay, well, Jonah did this. Why was Jonah still told to go to the people in Nineveh? Like they were really bad folks. I get it that he, you know, this is what God told him to do. 
But just a reminder, when Jonah gets up to go, he's not going to the coworker who makes fish every day at the lunch and everybody just kind of looks at it as annoying because they make the whole break room smell like fish, all right? He's going to the worst enemies you could ever imagine. Nineveh was a ruthless, the Assyrian Empire was a ruthless, vile place. This is how they would go about things. This is actually excavated artifacts from um, archaeological digs inside of the Assyrian Empire. And what this was, this is taking from excerpts of the in- interior walls of the big buildings and coliseums there in Nineveh. And what they would do is they would go on these military conquests and they would come back and they would get artists, you know, sculptors to come in and, and carve into the walls the things that they did on these military conquests. You know, they didn't have like a highlight reel to show everybody. Here's the top 10 ways we killed people at war last week. They don't have those things to show people. So they get these artisans to come in and sculpt these into the walls so that as people come in, they're continuing to reinforce, this is our culture. This is what we do. And this is actually one that was, was figured out and they uncovered it and understand what's going on here. This is somebody who's strung up and they're being pulled, stretched this way. And then you got these guys on this side and and they have knives and what they're getting ready to do here is is skin this person alive. This is what they would do and this is how they would memorialize their military conquests. Another one, again, just showing you how bad the Assyrian empire is that Jonah is saying yes to God on, you have authority. What they would do is they would go into different cities that they were conquering and all along the hillside, what they would do is they would, after they would kill anybody and everybody, they didn't care, you know, some places they would go, hey, we're only going to kill military age males, women, children, babies. They don't care who you are. They're going to kill everybody. They're going to imminent scorched earth. That's how they go about what they're doing. But they wouldn't just go there. What they would also do is they would take these stakes. And this is what you see in this picture. They would take these stakes and all along the hillside, they would take these stakes. They would impale people on them and then stake it in the ground. So that anybody who would come in or anybody who would see or anybody who would, you know, as, as they conquered that territory and left to go back and do the other things they had to do, anybody who came back into that territory would look around and go, oh, the Assyrians were here. As they saw the hills scattered with stakes with human beings impaled on them. This is the people that God is sending a second chance to. This is the people that God is sending a warning to. This is the people who are not... Uh, just neutral to the nation of Israel. This is a group of people who are antagonists to God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. Why would God be patient with them? It's a big question. And I think it's a question that is natural for human beings to ask. The problem with us though, is many times we fail to realize that from God's perspective, he is most concerned with his identity. God is most concerned with who he is and keeping up with his identity, not in what we do or do not do, which is why there are scriptures that that point to us, you know, these simple truths. Uh, One of them that I'll show you is is Psalm 103, verse eight. It says, the Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love. And again, that's not just to God's chosen little group of people. That's who he is to all people. In the New Testament passage along the same lines, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. That means he's, he's not just like, oh, I'm just going to forget about this. You know, you ever get in trouble and you, on the, on, on like at, at your you know, grandparents' house with your family, you get in trouble there and your parents tell you you're going to be grounded when you get home and like a few hours passed and you're going to get that ride home and then you get home and it's that, that waiting period where you're like, are they going to remember or not? You everybody been there? Okay. So like our God, like, he doesn't forget. He knows everything. 
He's a holy, righteous, perfect God. He knows everything that's ever been sinned against him. He's not slow to anger. He's not going to forget the things that have happened. But, and he's going to keep his promises. He's not slow as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish. God's not up there going, man, I just can't wait to strike you down. I can't wait to punish you. I can't wait to get back at you. But what he wants is repentance. That word's going to keep coming up today. He wants repentance. Even in the book of Ezekiel, another Old Testament passage, he said, God, God does not delight in the death of the wicked. And so the reason that God sends grace in the fact that he gives this second chance to the people of Israel is because, as hard as it may sound, even though they're enemies of Israel, they're still God's children. So what happens is, is Jonah goes in and he begins to give his message, an eight-word message to the people of Israel or to the people of Nineveh. He preaches this eight-word message to the people of Israel. You can see it if you go back up to Jonah 3.4. In Jonah 3.4, he said, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. Now, again, I went to school to be a preacher. I can tell you really quick that that's not a very seeker-friendly message. Uh, there's no poem in there. There's no story, a personal story about a dog. There's, there's no uh, funny thing to open up. There's no analogy or metaphor. There's no even action step. Jonah doesn't give him any sorts of point of application. He doesn't expose it well. Jonah just comes in and says, 40 days, you're going to be overthrown. 40 days. It's eight words in English. It's five words in the Hebrew. Five words. That's the word of God. Now, what's wild is that at five words, these people have this happen. Five words, 40 days, and this is gonna, the whole city is gonna be blown up. God's gonna send his judgment on the city, 40 days. It says, and the people believed. They believed God. I love this. They believed God, and they called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, please miss, don't miss this. We've been talking about this a lot, guys. Faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ is not, I just believe that he is who he says he is. I got to just make this mental ascent that I believe, okay, yeah, you are God, you are God's son, and I'm a bad person. I believe all that. Saving faith is belief accompanied by surrender. My faith is made evident by what I believe being backed up in what I do. And you see the display of, of what I would dare say even saving faith here in these Ninevites, as they believe what Jonah says is true, but then they don't just leave it at what Jonah says is true. They know there's something to do. They repent. They call a nationwide fast. They put on sackcloth. And in a second, you, 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 back when we were reading through this all the way, you saw even the king say, we're going to get in ashes. It's, it's, it's the way of saying that when I feel the guilt and I understand what I have done is wrong, I need to do something to make it right. Now again, you cannot save yourself. There is no work that you can work that would make you saved. But evidence that you have put your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is you now stand and say, my life is surrendered to your will and your way. It is an exchanged life. Now, what's fascinating here, and you see this kind of come up a couple of different times in this, why, when they're repenting, what is this sackcloth? Like, what, what is this? Is this like a burlap sack race? Like, what, well, I don't know what's going on. We heard something about them putting sacks on 
cows and, and livestock. What's going on here? Let me explain to you what this is so you, you don't miss it. It's not just sackcloth and ashes. You're, if you read your Bible much, you're going to see those two things come up over and over and over again. Sackcloth and ashes. Uh, sackcloth is kind of like burlap. Imagine like a burlap sack. Imagine wearing burlap. You know, how many of you like getting arguments about what to wear to church? You go to your closet. I don't have anything to wear. You're not going to pick burlap. How about that? Um, Sackcloth and ashes was something that was not just reserved for when people were being in a season where they were being called to repentance. It was actually more so used in times of mourning. If you look at the story of David, when David loses the death, the death of one of David's sons, David puts on sackcloth and ashes. He, he, he gets in ashes in the floor. He puts on sackcloth. It is what you do when you're mourning. Now, what's fascinating here is this is what this group of people do. They put on instruments of mourning, like someone has died, like someone has passed away. Now, remember, what was the nation of Assyria known for? What was their gold star? What was the thing when you think nation of Assyria, when you think Ninevites, what do you think? This is a people who's good at doing what? Killing. They're mourning the fact that they have been used for years and years as instruments of death. Now, Fast forward, don't get too caught up in how gruesome all of this is, but understand why this is and even connect what happens here in the book of Jonah to who Jesus is and the words Jesus says. Jesus in Matthew 5, 4, greatest sermon ever preached, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus starts out that sermon by saying uh, these words and a collection of other things that we refer to as the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are those who mourn for they should be comforted. Now, a lot of times we are in, in well-meaning times when somebody that, who loves someone passes away, has a loved one pass away, we'll write Matthew 5, 4 in a card and send it to them. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Now, does Jesus comfort people who are grieving the loss of a loved one? For sure, without a doubt. But that's not what this passage is talking about. He's saying, blessed are those who mourn over sin. Blessed are those who mourn over the fact that all sin leads to death. Blessed are those who mourn over the fact. Again, but go back to the very beginning. Take it from Genesis to Jonah all the way to Jesus. If you eat the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. Sin leads to death. And so what these people are doing is they are saying, we're going to put on burlap, which is the most uncomfortable thing you could ever have up against your skin. We're going to fast so that we're starving. We're going to get in ashes as to have this outward display of our inward, you know, ashes is burnt. It's, it symbolizes this blackness. It symbolizes that things have died and are wasted away. And all that is left is the ashes. It's their way of saying, we're going to put ourselves in an uncomfortable way and feel uncomfortable because now we have finally got to the place where we're actually uncomfortable with our sin. And what I love about this, and this is, you, you have to fast forward to the gospel to get this. When Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who mourn over their sin for they'll be comforted. The only way they could ever be comforted is through him as a great comforter. See, for the Ninevites, putting on sackcloth and ashes as a sign of their repentance. Well, when do I finally get comfort? When enough time has passed and I've been itchy enough to where I don't feel bad about all the thousands of people and babies and women and children that I impaled on stakes and lined up in the city, when does that go away? Talk to anybody who's ever been to war. They'll tell you those things never go away. You're always going to feel those. But when Jesus comes on the scene and he says, blessed are those who mourn for they'll be comforted. What Jesus is saying is the only way you can ever find comfort in the knowledge that your sin caused me death is coming under my 
blood that forgives your sins. The only way you can be comforted is knowing that it was for the joy set before me that I endured this cross, that I scorned the shame that this cross is supposed to symbolize. I picked mine up. I went up the hill to Golgotha, and I died for you. So you don't have to be ashamed of your sin anymore because I scorned the shame that this cross implies. I went to this cross joyfully. I did this for you so that now you can mourn over your sin, but you can know that a comforter has come in and I am him. And that's why he says this. And this is why the people repent the way that they repent. It goes on from here. Then we see, oh, I pressed the wrong button. It says that it wasn't just the people who it journeyed in repentance, but it was also the king. It says the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne. If change is ever gonna happen, we've gotta get off our thrones. We gotta realize that Jesus is the one on the throne. He's the one who rules. He's the one who reigns. And so the king, this is all symbolic what he's doing here. He gets off of his throne. He's saying there is now somebody else who's in charge. Go back to what we talked about earlier. There is someone who is the authority. Jonah is a mouthpiece for the authority of God. And he says, even though I'm the king, even though I have a crown, even though I have a robe, I am not the authority anymore. I'm stepping off of my crown and I'm going to sit in ashes and burlap. He covered himself with sackcloth, sat in ashes, and he issued this decree. He issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered in sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Now, if you're like me, you read this and go, did the cows really have to repent? Like, what did they do wrong? Like, what, what did the cows and the goats, I mean, goats, I see them doing all sorts of crazy, but like, what did they really get wrong? Like, what was going on here? Well, what this king knows and understands is that oftentimes when God sends punishment and plagues, think back to even the Egyptians, where did God send his punishment to? There's a whole plague that, where this happened. The livestock all died. They would know that, that judgment and punishment from God or even the gods affects our livestock. And so this king is really not trying to, like he's trying to really make sure all of his bases are covered. He says, don't even feed or water the cows. Now, I don't know if you've ever been around cows. Um, I, I haven't too much, but I know this about them. What do you think they'll do when you don't feed them or water them? Moo. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, so imagine, again, picture yourself, put yourself in Nineveh during this nationwide fast, during this nationwide, I mean, even the cows are like, this is itchy. Like I have fur and this is worse. Like they're in sackcloth and ashes. I don't know how you get them coats. And I don't know what that would look like, but I would have loved to have seen that. But you walk through the city streets of Nineveh and you can tell something is different. This city that was sex, drugs, rock and roll, kill as many people as we can, prostitutes galore, is in a nationwide repentance. And you can't get over the fact that everywhere you go, you hear livestock screaming out, feed me, feed me, feed me. And he says, let everyone turn. Let everyone turn. Not let everyone just pause for a little while so we can get this God off our back, get this Jonah guy out of here. He says, let us turn, which implies I'm not just angry. I'm not just sad. We're not just broken over what we did, but we're actually turning to and realizing that there's something better. That's the key in repentance, guys. A lot of times in the church world, we think repentance is I just stopped doing the bad stuff I did. And if that's all that motivates you to stop doing the bad things, you know what you're gonna do? Eventually, you're gonna go start doing bad things again. 
Are you going to trade those bad things in for different bad things? You're going to trade one addiction and get a new one. What Jesus says true repentance is, is when you are consumed, not with what could be in front of you if you continue to go this way, but you're consumed by what is the other way. I'm so in love with Christ. I realize that he is a true and greater substance and supply that he will meet my needs that these things never could. He is the true source. And this is what motivates me to make that about face and run headlong into who he is. And I believe that's some of what's happening here. We turn from the evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. He knows who they are. He knows what they've done. He's confessing that we've been a violent, atrocious people. He goes on from there. (laughs) It's my favorite word, probably in the whole book of Jonah. Who knows? May God turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. I told you when we first started this that, in my opinion, the book of Jonah is, is full of just, it's, 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 it's written as satire. It's written with some comedy in it. It's written to make you go, oh, I see myself and how silly I can be sometimes and how stupid sin makes me at times. So this king, he gives this whole decree, gives this whole proclamation. At the end of it, he goes, who knows? Maybe God may relent. Now, I, I, in my story, I don't, take it, I don't think it's too much uh, redeemed imagination to imagine that Jonah is kind of sitting by as all this goes on. And as this king goes, who knows, maybe God will plant. Jonah is on his end going, I know. I know what he'll do. That's the reason my skin still smells like fish. I know exactly what he'll do. And we're going to get more into this last week. But look at what he says. If there's any doubt that Jonah knew. He says, oh, Lord, is this not what I said when yet in my country? He's like, I told you this was going to happen in Israel. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. This is why I was getting out of here, because I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's quoting God back to scripture and whining about God doing things at the same exact time. Jonah is elite in his hypocrisy. I knew. That's the reason Jonah did not run because he was afraid. He did not run, but let me clarify that. Jonah didn't run because he was afraid of the Ninevites. I don't think he was nervous that they would impale him, that they'd skin him alive. Jonah's got the same spirit of God on him that, that led shepherd boy David to stand up on the front lines of, to fight Goliath. That same spirit of God is upon him as a prophet of God. He's not afraid of these people. He knows what God can do. He knows how God can repent and change these people. What he's afraid of is that God will love who he hates. That's why he says, I knew. I knew in Jerusalem. I knew when I went down to Joppa. I knew when I got on the boat. I knew when I went to sleep. I knew when I got up. I knew when I got overboard. I knew in the well. I knew when I got vomited out onto the beach. And I knew when I told them that in 40 days, the city was going to be overthrown, that they were going to repent because I know that you are just a merciful God. I just didn't want you to be. Now, I don't know if you ever found yourself in a situation like that where you won't listen to God because you know God will do what his character says he will do. Well, you're disobedient and stubborn to him because you know he's loving. You're confident that he will be who he says he's going to be. But the true story of Jonah shows us that regardless of how reluctant you may be 
God still calls us into obedience. And it is up to God who he will save and who he will not save. It is his thing that he's in charge of. And what we see happen is, what you see in verse 10, back into our chapter, says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. And again, none of this is surprising to God. It's why God sent, them, sent Jonah in the first place. God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. Now, I, I, I didn't try to make this rhyme on purpose, but I want you to see what preceded God relenting. What preceded God relenting was the people doing what? Repenting. And, and, and faith-inspired repentance leads to God relenting. Now, in our lives, like apply this to us here now, the relenting that we will experience is not necessarily the punishment from God because Jesus took on the punishment of God on the cross. What, what God will relent of is you will experience less of the consequences of your sinful mistakes as you repent of those sinful mistakes and turn to a new direction that is Christ. Now, Maybe you hear yourself, and, and through all this stuff, you'll be like, man, this is a story of Jonah. This guy was in a fish for three days. Like, I'm a biologist. I know this is made up. Um, this is all just silly. And, and, and on top of the fact that, okay, he was in a whale for three, or a fish, whatever it was, for three days, on top of that, now he shows up in this, this nation, this empire that was impaling people and doing all this stuff. You're, you're going to really say that, okay, now the whole entire nation turns, repents, and believes in God? That's far-fetched. Well, maybe it's not as far-fetched as you think. If you actually go through and you, and you study some of the history around this, it's been fascinating to experience this this week. Um, one of the things that actually had happened preceding to Jonah ever getting there is there were two big, giant, massive plagues that had happened there in Israel, or there in Nineveh, sorry. And as these things happened, they were wiped out of logs, the famine, two giant plagues that kind of caused this famine to happen there in Nineveh. And so people are realizing, okay, maybe there's God's hand. Maybe there's a, whether it's this God or some other God, some, somebody's mad at us right now. On top of that, there was a, a solar eclipse. And so during the middle of the day, it gets completely dark during that period of time. They're just beginning to see, okay, some things are a little bit unique. Some things are weird. And on top of that, Jonah comes in and somebody probably has to tell a little bit of the story. You know, I, I just feel like when Jonah gets vomited out and when he gets there, he probably is very unique looking. A lot of the scientists and the stuff that I read, historians say that the inside of the belly of a whale, the, 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 the acid, the stomach acid inside of a fish would have likely bleached Jonah's skin to where Jonah as a, as a Mediterranean guy with probably you know, dark hair and kind of olive skin shows up and now he looks like he's an albino, white hair, white beard, white skin. Pretty fly for a white guy, shows up in Nineveh. That's two early, late 90s rocks references if you were tracking. He shows up and I, I would imagine he even tells him a little bit of the story of I was vomited from a fish and he looks like no person they've ever seen ever looked. Now, again, none of that really like, okay, well, what, do you, what, do you, what are you getting after? As I was studying, one of the things that you realize about the people of Nineveh is they worshiped a God called Dagon. I want to show you a picture of Dagon or if you're from Ola Dagum. This, this is Dagon. This is the God of the Ninevites. This is the God that they worshiped. Now, even, this is what's kind of unique. Even though Nineveh, it was, was a land, that whole Assyrian empire was landlocked, this is their God. This is the fish God who they worship and serve. And so you have this albino looking guy. You have uh, 
plague and famine and plague and famine. You have solar eclipse. You have this guy who's just white as a ghost show up on your shores and say he was inside the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. It vomited up and here's your message of repentance. Now things are starting to go, well, maybe their repentance makes sense. A little bit. Now what's, what's wild about this whole story is the irony that is bound up in it. And see, God really wants you to see this irony. I believe this is the whole reason we have the book of Jonah in our Bible. So we'd see and catch this divine irony of how Jonah is so reluctant all the way through. And then you have this Ninevite people. Now, Jonah came and he said what? He said, in 40 days, the city's gonna be destroyed. Did Jonah tell them to repent? Did Jonah tell them to fast? No. Did Jonah tell them to put on sackcloth and ashes? No. Did Jonah go to the king and knock on his little palace and go, listen, big fella, you better get everybody in line. Use your authority. We need the whole city. Cows too. Yes, cows and sheep and goats. Get them all sackcloth and ashes. Get everybody suited up. Jonah didn't say any of that. This is just where they get the, the repentance momentum rolling even in their story. And the crazy irony here is that Jonah's, in, 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 the, in Hebrew language, Jonah speaks five words to the nation of Israel and the whole nation repents. And God, to his prophet, the prophet of God, God sends him a clear verbatim message. God lets him go through a terrible storm. God lets him get eaten and vomited by a fish. And then God lets him hear his audible word one more time. And then that Jonah finally, albeit reluctantly, obeys God. And then you have the nation of Nineveh, the Assyrian empire, and it takes them five words. The Israelites who read this and the Americans who read this were both supposed to feel shame. Because sometimes the people we think are the furthest from God are actually the people who are the closest to God. We're supposed to be, ugh. We'll talk about this a little bit more next week, but every day on the day of atonement, what the nation of Israel would do is they would actually read the story of Jonah all the way through. And then collectively, like all the church would stand up and they would go, I am Jonah. And it was their way of collectively saying, God forgive us for failing to understand that you are a God who loves all the nations, that you're a God who loves all the people, that you are the God of the cities, that you're the God of the Los Angeles, the Atlantas, the Buckheads, the Nashvilles, the New Yorks, and all the other great cities of our country and our world. He's the God of the city and his heart's for the city. The city is where the most people are. And he says to his people, to the people who have his word and who have heard his word, Please be willing to go to the cities. Please be willing to understand that maybe, just maybe, the people that you think are the furthest from God are actually people who are closer than you ever dared to dream. And maybe be willing to think that I, as your God, your Father, the one who knows you and, and made you and knit you together in your mother's womb, I would maybe use you to be a vessel through which they would receive salvation. This is why there's this, this fascinating word that Jesus mentioned when talking about the story of Jonah. So to kind of set up where, what prompted Jesus to go here, some religious people. Now again, I've talked to you guys about religious. 
You may not call yourself religious, but anybody who's not in this room right now who doesn't go to church would call you religious, okay? Jesus is talking to some religious people, specifically religious leaders, and they're like, hey, we, we maybe want to believe in you. What sign are you going to give us? Prove it, essentially, is what they're saying. And Jesus gets frustrated. He's like, you wicked and rebellious people. He says, there's going to be no sign that's going to be given to you except the sign of Jonah. And he explains that a little bit when he says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's Jesus saying, I will be a true and greater Jonah. Now, this is what's wild. This is what's peculiar. This is what he's, he's telling religious leaders this. He says, the men of Nineveh, all those people, those wicked people, the impaling people on rods, the, the wicked king who signed off on all this. Then the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. So, I mean, put yourself in the role of a, a Pharisee religious Israelite right there. Going, the people of Nineveh are going to condemn you. Jesus brought the thunder. And here's why he can say that. He says, they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Now, let's just pause right there for a second. What, 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 what does that mean? Okay. When Jonah came and he preached to them, did Jonah preach a, a message of God's judgment and God's love? No. <laughs> he just preached God's judgment. He said, 40 days, you're going to die. <laughs> That's it. And what he's saying here is Pharisees, Sadducees, religious people, even maybe people today listening to the message of the gospel, the people of Nineveh, they repented at only hearing a message about God's judgment. But now I have come on the scene and I have preached and preached and preached a message of God's judgment. I'm not going to let that go, but I'm going to take that judgment because of God's love. And the nation of Nineveh is going to stand up in judgment of you because they repented with only half of the coin. You've got God's judgment and God's love in me. I've preached both and I've taken both and I am both. You still don't believe in me. That's why it says the people of Nineveh are going to look down their nose at you and go, how is he right in front of your face? And you failed to realize who he was. And I hope that that's not your story either that Jesus is right in front of your face, preaching a message of judgment. And he's the only one who has a right to judge. He's the only one who has a right to say, your sins separated you from a holy, perfect God. And those sins deserve death. But at the same time, he's the only one who is judgeful enough and loving enough to come in and go, because I love you, I don't want you to get that judgment. I will take all of that judgment upon myself. All of the punishment, all the pain, all of the results that you deserve for that, I'm gonna pay that price through my blood, through my death, and I will resurrect again. And you can have new life. You can receive grace, but you will re only receive grace through faith and what I paid. You will only receive grace and you will only escape judgment if you come under my sacrificial life for you and you lay down your life as a sacrifice to follow and surrender to me for the rest of your life. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. And if you're not in it, you have not received this, my prayer is that you will. My prayer is that you would surrender and be baptized today. But also my prayer is for those who have received this to know and understand, guys, that if you've been rescued by God, he will call you and he will not stop calling you to be used by him to rescue people who you think are lost causes. Some people in this room, you have a, a Jonah type call on your life to go to the hard places. And by some people, I mean all people 
to go to people that aren't easy to witness to. To go to people who you would never find yourself being friends with them. And that's my challenge to you this week is to take the word of God and go to a Ninevite. To go to someone who you would say, this is the last person who I would normally ever share the gospel with. This is the last person who I would ever invite to church. You're a, a staunch Republican. Go find somebody at your work who you know is just as far on the other side of that wing as possibly could and go invite them to come to church. You may get rejected. You may get you know, tossed out. But listen, here's what I know is most people are closer to salvation than you give them credit for. What if that person who you've deemed as someone who's kind of too far away is actually much closer than you think, but you've played judge and jury instead of letting God? Some of you have a rebellious family member, the black sheep of your family. Go to them. Send them a message. Reach out. Hey, can I, how can I pray for you? You, know, you already have them come into mind. That's why it's as quiet in here as it is. My challenge to you this week is whether it's eight words, 18 words, 80 words, just simply be obedient. Your, Jonah's job was not to ensure that the results of a repentant city happened. Jonah's job was to simply be obedient with the command of God. And if you have been rescued by God, he is commanding you to go used by him to rescue those who maybe the rest of the world has deemed that's a lost cause. I believe the words of Jesus are true. He said, the harvest is ripe, but the workers are few. My prayer is that when he looks down at McDonough Christian Church, he doesn't go, well, there's only a few workers there. But every person who calls this church home is inviting other people in to call Godfather and this family home. And I pray that you would embrace that. That you embrace that part of your call as someone who is a member, part of the family here at MCC, is to invite as many people in, not to come into a church experience, maybe that's part of it, but invite as many people into an encounter with Jesus as possible. And not just the people who are easy. Maybe some Ninevites. Maybe some people that you wish God wouldn't save. Because of how bad they've already hurt you. See, this is where the gospel calls us to go. We have a gospel that called Jesus to go to the hardest place ever, the cross. And we can't expect to be people of the cross and Jesus not call us to go to hard places as well. But here's what I know. He is Emmanuel, God, with you in the hard places. Walk with him, be obedient with him, and he'll take you there. Today we're gonna get to see uh, three people be baptized and uh, yeah, well, who is right? And maybe more. Um, if you have not put your faith and trust in Christ, I pray today you would be baptized. I, I'll stay in the water as long as we need to stay in the water. We have everything we need for you to get baptized today. Don't delay. Don't wait. Don't be disobedient. If you know the Holy Spirit saying get baptized today, go do it. I'll, I'll be back there in the back for a second and we'll baptize you. And as we get ready to sing the song, how Jesus paid it all, I pray that you... You hold the cost in your hand. You hold the bread. This represents his body, and this is what it costs for me to be a part of this family. You hold the blood uh, represented by that juice and represents the cost that Jesus paid. And when you say and sing this song, all to him I owe, I want you to know that all to him I owe includes your surrender. 
all to him I owe is I owe you authority in my life. To if you say move, I say yes. If you say go to the hard places, I say yes. If you say shut up, I say yes. If you say speak, I say yes. That's what all to him I owe means. Don't hold back. Sing through your heart. If you're making a decision to follow Christ today, I'll be back there in the back. I'll meet you back there. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for it manifesting itself through Jesus and it manifesting itself here today through the preaching of your word. I pray that the word that has left my mouth through your scripture does not return void, but it yields a harvest more plentiful than we could ever think to ask or imagine. Do the things that only you can do inside the hearts and minds of these humans that I uh, inhabit this room with. You and you alone, God, can change. You and you alone, God, can redeem. You and you alone, God, can restore. So Holy Spirit, move, have your way in this room. Pick people up and move them if you have to. We surrender to you. We surrender to you. In your name.